Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the prophets. And here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John will be having their second discussion on Daniel chapter 3. We do invite you to check out those show notes, particularly our YouTube channel, where we are currently winding up a series on a theology of the tabernacle with Alistair Roberts. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Daniel chapter 3. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James Bijan. Brian Motes, as usual, we're grateful to Brian for uh, putting together the recording and for running all the equipment and uh, making sure that everything gets edited and smoothed out for you. We started a study of Daniel chapter 3 last week. Uh, We're in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Daniel, and we looked at the first, basically the first 12 or 13 verses of Daniel chapter 3 which set up the story of the three men in the fiery furnace. It starts with Nebuchadnezzar's decree that all men should bow down to the image that he sets up in the plain of Dura, and he threatens the fiery furnace to anyone who doesn't bow down. There's a basic structure to uh, Daniel 3, very simple structure that we can see, and I think this is this is helpful for seeing the focus that Daniel 3 places on Nebuchadnezzar himself. We start out with Nebuchadnezzar's decree about the image and everyone bowing down to it and the fulfillment of that decree in the first seven verses. And the chapter ends with Nebuchadnezzar again speaking. This time he's blessing the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he's issuing a decree that threatens death and destruction to anyone who blasphemes the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Nebuchadnezzar starts out by calling everyone to worship this image. He ends up with another decree that threatens um, destruction to anyone who anyone who blasphemes against the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. It's not yet a confession of that God of the Jews, which he'll make in the next chapter, but it does show a progress in his understanding of who this God is. But the chapter is framed by that, which is important. I mentioned last time that you have this increasing focus on Nebuchadnezzar as not only as king of the empire, but also as uh, as an individual human being and how God is dealing with him through the course of these chapters. So that's the frame around the chapter. And then within the chapter, the two big scenes are the scenes of audiences with the king. Uh, we looked at the first of these in, uh, in the last episode in verses 8 through 12, where the Chaldeans come forward and bring charges against certain Jews. The phrase bring charges actually means something like they ate the pieces of. So it's a, it's a, the, the phrasing suggests a violent accusation. They want to devour the Jews and destroy them. They're like predators who are coming after the, these three Jews. So that audience with the Chaldeans first, and then today we're starting with the audience of the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are also called in before the king in order to answer the charges that the Chaldeans have brought. So you have those two matching audiences, and they not only match in general, but also kind of point for points. You have... The Chaldeans coming before the king and then the Jews coming before the king. The Chaldeans repeat the order, the decree of Nebuchadnezzar uh, in verses 10 and 11 uh, concerning everyone bowing down, falling down, worshiping the image at the voice of the music and the threat that they would be cast into the fiery furnace. Uh, When Nebuchadnezzar meets with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he repeats exactly those same things. He tells them about the decree. He lists all the instruments again. 
he reminds them that the fiery furnace is the means of execution. And then the, the Chaldeans in the previous section accuse the Jews, these three friends who have not done what the king has commanded and instead have defied the king. And then in the second cycle, uh, we have the three friends responding to that accusation before the king. So we, we have these two scenes and they're organized in parallel so that uh, we're, we're set up with the accusation and then the answer that the three friends that the three friends bring to Nebuchadnezzar when he brings this accusation to them. Something that we see on a number of occasions where kings make these bold decrees, they're intending to seem powerful, and yet they end up caught in their own words. It seems unlikely to me that this is actually the outcome that Nebuchadnezzar wanted. First of all, when the decree is resisted, it is already a sign of weakness that he has put himself in a position where he's exerted his strength and not everyone has submitted. That's a very bad sign. But beyond that, there's the fact that these people had already been seen to be among his best servants. They're associated with Daniel, who's been given high authority. And he already has questions about the Chaldeans from the preceding chapter. And yet they're trapping him in his, in his own words. He's seeing that this expression of his authority, the whole purpose of this great act of establishing this image and getting people to bow to it was to express his dominion, his control, and actually his own servants are trapping him in his words and using it to advance their own petty rivalries and squabbles for um, jockeying for positions within the kingdom. And so this is something that we see elsewhere in the story of Ahasuerus and Haman. Uh, We see it in the story of um, Daniel in the lion's den later on, that the kings in their great acts and proclamations that are supposed to represent their power, end up showing their weakness. And in the end, um, they end up being um, displaying the brittleness of their control. It looks very strong on the surface. It comes with great threats and warnings. But in the end, it doesn't materialize. Yeah. Some of those parallels with the book of Esther, um, Alistair, we, we could take a little bit further. So, I mean, Peter mentioned the way in which the Chaldeans, when they bring their accusation, it's um, it's very loaded. Um, where is it? Verse twelve onwards, they they pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or, or worship the golden image that you've set up. And very much reminds me of Hammond's description of um, the Jews. You know, there, there's a, a people among your uh, provinces in your kingdom, and, and their laws are different. Um, they don't keep the king's laws, Hammond says, you know, and it's not to the king's prophets to uh, tolerate them. And, and so they're, they're portrayed in this insubordinate way. And it, it's not a, a serious insubordination in the sense that they would probably have been loyal servants of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, quite possibly the Chaldeans had more sinister um, ideas of kind of rebellion and overthrow and so forth but it's this sort of um concocted enmity that's kind of set up within the kingdom and just as Haman is infuriated because he almost has the whole kingdom he can throw around 10,000 talents of silver or it might might have been more might have been 100,000 uh, um will the one thing he wants is for Mordecai to bow down before him and and he can have no joy in life until he's got that it feels like there's a similar situation here with nebuchadnezzar in that these jews are no threat to him he can have them thrown to the furnace at the 
drop of a hat, but he really wants their obedience. And so he goes through this, um, uh, goes through these motions of giving them a second um, opportunity because he clearly doesn't, doesn't want to throw them to the fire in, 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 in that sense. He, he wants to have them obey him. And so there's this sort of paradoxical situation where he's the man with all the power and all the authority here. And yet the one thing he wants, the submission of his servants, he, he can't get for, for love or money. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is the force of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, question, a series of questions to the three friends. Uh, he's giving them, it seems like verse 15, he's giving them another, another chance. If you're ready, we're going to do this again. We're going to play the instruments again. You can fall down this time. Uh, otherwise, you get thrown in the burning in, into the furnace of fire. Um, so yeah, he's he's trying to save face. He's trying to he's trying to conform. I think that's 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 such a human response, though, isn't it? I mean, everything can be going great, but the one the one little sticking point that is not going great is the thing that we focus our all of our attention on, and it just. Uh, one one little thing that doesn't uh, doesn't go our way uh, ruins the whole day, ruins the whole week. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, yeah. has the same kind of reaction here. Mm. It's it's quite comic, isn't it? it? It's as if he's sort of trying to convince himself that they, they just misunderstood. You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't really realise they were meant to bow down at that time. So let's let's like replay and it will it will work out second time round. Yeah. I mentioned at the end of the last uh, episode that uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have, first of all, just privately, quietly refused to go along with the uh, decree, but they've been brought to the king now because they've been reported by the Chaldeans, and now they have another level of uh, level of test. Now they have to defy the king to his face or buckle. And it's interesting how they respond. First of all, they respond by everybody else in the in the chapter has been just repeating the same sets of words over and over again. The herald uh, gives the the list of all the all the instruments. The Chaldeans list all the instruments. Nebuchadnezzar has just listed all the instruments uh, several times. The narrator uh, gives this list of all these different officials, and then the three friends come uh, and they speak quite directly. They're not just refusing to bow down to the image and refusing to participate in this ritual, but they're kind of refusing the entire rhetoric that's been built up around this. And it's also interesting that they don't actually offer any kind of arguments or self-defense. It's like, we're not going to, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this. Verse 16 says, we're just putting ourselves in the Lord's hands. Uh, We're not going to argue with you. We're not going to defend ourselves. The Lord will deliver us if he wants. He can, if he wants, he may not want to, but we're still not going to do it. And it's just this kind of straightforward refusal before the king in the king's face that uh, it stands out in the chapter with all of these, uh, as we described, kind of comical repetitions that are surrounding it. Even as they're being thrown in, you have some of those comical elements repeated in that they have um, the fiery furnace put up seven times. Um, You have the fact that they are thrown into the fire and it lists various items that they are wearing, bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats and their other garments. And it's as if the whole comedic cycle is becoming more and more evident as the king's attempt to grasp at power that he does not really have ends up exploding in his face and putting him in, in a position where at the end of this, he's being forced into an action that he's not quite likely not something he wants he wants to do 
um, even though they're in the fiery furnace, he's in a bit of a bind now himself too. But the strength in this situation, in the interaction between Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the king, is not straightforwardly on the side of the king. The king needs them to submit. And when they don't, he can exert his power against them. But if he if they continue to resist, he is made to look weak, whatever happens. Hmm. A couple of points on those two lists you mentioned, Alistair. Um, the list of instruments in chapter 7 is actually an element short. Um, one of the instruments has gone missing. And I wonder if part of that is alluding to that's the point at which the um, uh, the Jews fail to bow down before the image. And I wonder if what's happening there is, is the sort of the symmetry and the regularity of what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is, has started to start to crumble there. It's kind of losing its shape and losing its uh, liturgical pattern and all the rest of it. And then this um, uh, list of uh, list of clothes in verse 21 it goes from um uh trousers i i take this to be perhaps sort of tunics hats and um if 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 that's right then it's going sort of upwards um rather than downwards so while the um the sort of colossus is sort of goes from head and and sort of deteriorates as you go down to the feet this seems to be that the sort of jews are on the on their way up while the uh, empire is on its way down. It's a, it seems to me that the uh, enumeration of the clothes also has a, 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 a kind of an official um, overtone. So these, these are men who are um, rulers in the province of Babylon. They're part of the administration over the province of Babylon. That's we're told that at the end of chapter two. Uh, and then we have these, a series of contrasts that are going on, when they're thrown into the fire, into the furnace, the mighty men who throw them into the furnace die. They're thrown alive into the furnace, and they're thrown in with these these clothing this clothing on, which I think suggests that they're that suggests their official kind of their official kind of uniform, as it were. All the way through the chapter, they're given the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are their Babylonian names. They're not being identified by their Jewish names, but it's almost it's in their official capacity. Uh, as members of Nebuchadnezzar's administration, that they're challenging his authority. And uh, so what's at stake is not just their personal faithfulness and personal witness. What's at stake and what's uh, what's set up is a contrast between the officials who ba- do bow down to the image and uh, apparently are loyally serving Nebuchadnezzar, as opposed to those who seem to be disloyal, but they're going to prove to be more faithful administrators and and rulers within Babylon precisely because they recognize the limits on Nebuchadnezzar's authority. It's because they're serving a God who is king over Nebuchadnezzar. That's what makes them appropriate, proper kinds of rulers in in Babylon. Hmm. The Hebrews' response to the king is is quite wonderful, isn't it? Um, I mean, it, it starts in a slightly disrespectful tone, as in, rather than the, O king, live forever, it's a slightly blunt, in verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, um, we have no need to answer you, as in, Nebuchadnezzar at at this point has set himself up against God, basically, and against the future God has decreed, and as a result, they're quite direct, and it it seems to me that in verses 17 and 18, they 
they don't try to claim too much. They don't have this certain knowledge of the future of whether God will deliver them or not. Rather, kind of they um, they I guess seek to take control of what they can take control of. So their confidence ultimately is in the fact that God will do what is right, you know, and they can't determine whether he will or won't deliver them. What they can determine is whether or not they bow down before Nebuchadnezzar. And um, and so that is what they do determine to do. And I guess the, the flying the ointment of nebuchadnezzar's ceremony i guess is the fact that they have um uh, a more powerful fear they fear the one who ultimately has their destiny in his hands which isn't nebuchadnezzar it's the god of heaven and while i guess everyone else on the plane is ruled by fear and the threat of a furnace will do the job um they have a um a, a higher fear and a, a high sovereign who they serve I mentioned last time when we looked at the setup of the image and the uh, and the plane with a fiery furnace nearby that uh, it had some analogies with the temple system. Ancient pagan temples were always places where the image of a god was established. It was the home of a god and the home of his image in particular. Uh, and I think we're continuing to have that that kind of sacrificial or temple scenario that's being developed here. So you, you have uh, the thread is that the those who don't bow to the image being thrown in the furnace. These three men are tied up and thrown to the furnace, reminiscent of the uh, scene with uh, Isaac, who's bound and placed on the altar before Abram, his, uh, Abraham is, uh, is going to sacrifice him as, a, as an ascension offering. And uh, they're, thrown into the, th- they're thrown into the furnace bound, as in that earlier episode with Abraham and Isaac. Uh, they're going to be delivered. They're going to be raised up from the dead. The valiant warriors who throw them in die, so you have a, a, almost a substitutionary kind of idea as you do in the in the same, in the scene in Genesis twenty two. So you, you have this uh, kind of sacrificial motif going through, and the the three friends are going to pass through the fire rather than being uh, destroyed by it, as the as the mighty men are who who throw them in. They're going to be glorified and elevated by it, which is part of the action of sacrifice. Sacrifice always destroys the flesh, as it were, and transforms to smoke and smoke uh, and transforms something that's uh, an ascent, uh, ascension to God as a soothing aroma. So you have that kind of uh, glorification image. They're thrown into the fire, but come out as uh, and they're elevated at the end of the chapter. In the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, Dathan and Abiram, you have fire as part of the division between the true and the false servants of the Lord. You have a similar thing in the story of Nadab and Abihu, when fire comes out from the presence of the Lord. And in those cases, there is this distinction between the Aaronic faithful priesthood and those Aaronites who are actually performing their tasks in the right way, and the false pretenders. And here it seems there's something similar going on, that by the fire they are marked out in a way that sets them apart as the Lord's true servants. And also, you have a great spec. I mean, this was all set up for a great spectacle. But again, it's not the spectacle that Nebuchadnezzar intended. Rather, what was supposed to be a spectacle of his power proves to be a spectacle of the Lord's power over his power, and also of the faithfulness 
of his servants who actually were the ones who were resisting his unreasonable decree. And so here I think we see the significance of the fire as this sign of, um, I mean, the Lord in his judgment is often compared to a consuming fire. And it seems to be something similar here. The true servants are marked out by that. And I think you mentioned this in the previous episode, James, that whereas the fire was supposed to purify and now it's heated up seven times more, and what it actually reveals is the purity of these servants of the Lord rather than melting them down into the power of Babylon or burning them off like dross. In the end, they are the true statues that stand. They're not the ones that fall down, whereas this statue, as we'll see later, will be cut down in the form of the tree in the following chapter. Mm. There's an interesting turn of phrase in verse 27 in that it said the fire had not had any power over the bodies of them. And I guess it just underlines what you're saying, and I say that that is the key issue here, the exercise of power. It's interesting how the chapter uh, follows the emotional reactions of Nebuchadnezzar. So when uh, the Chaldeans come in and give him this report about certain Jews who are not bowing down to the image, he's in rage and anger in verse 13. Then when the the Jews actually defy him to his face, then he's filled with wrath in verse 19. And then when they're finally thrown into the fiery furnace, uh, he is astounded, stands up in haste, uh, because of what he sees inside the fire. So again, it's a, a sign that what's happening in the chapter is not just about the heroism of the three friends, but the way that their heroism and their witness is affecting Nebuchadnezzar, um, moving from wrath to astonishment and finally to a uh, confession of uh, a, some kind of acknowledgement of the God of, uh, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So what what he sees in the fire, of course, is a is a fourth man. We've been talking. We talked last time about how the three are by themselves. Daniel is absent, and yet the three friends are standing firm in the in in spite of Daniel's in spite of Daniel's absence. But when they get into the fire, they are a, a fourfold a foursome again. Uh, we've we've talked in previous episodes about Daniel and his three friends as kind of the the cornerstones of God's house. He's the house that he's building within Babylon. Uh, if Babylon is itself the fiery furnace, as Egypt was, uh, then the Lord is building a house within the fiery furnace with the fr- three friends and then a fourth who resembles the son of the gods. Who do you think that fourth is? How would you identify the fourth that's in the midst of the fire with them? We could maybe relate it to the image of the burning bush that isn't consumed with the angel of the Lord speaking from the midst of that. Now there are three servants that join um, what might be the angel of the Lord in the midst of the flame. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, the parallel makes sense. It's it's interesting that, as you're saying, Alistair, that the ability to stand in the burning bush without being cons- without within the fire without being consumed is now extended to three human beings. You know, the angel of the Lord being in the midst of the burning bush is one thing. Three human beings along with the angel of the Lord in the fiery furnace is something. That resilience in the face of fire is being expanded, extended to, to these uh, faithful witnesses. Now, I think, too, if we, if we think of the fiery furnace again as a symbol of the condition of exile, uh, a kind of repetition of the uh, sojourn in Egypt, then 
part of the image here is that the Lord is present in the midst of the fire, along with his faithful servants, those who confess him, those who refused about, refused about idols, uh, those who stand up to kings and rulers and defy their, their idolatrous orders. The Lord is going to be with them even in the midst of the even in the midst of exile. And that, that's the message of the early chapters of Ezekiel, for example, when Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord uh, leaving the house of the Lord, leaving the temple, moving off to the east, eventually coming and appearing to Ezekiel while he's in Babylon. The Lord shares exile with his people, and he's in the midst of the fire along with them. And so they can be sustained in the midst of the fire because the Lord is going to be uh, present along with them. It's interesting. You do have another image of a fire that doesn't consume later on in the book of Daniel, which is the throne of the Lord, which is a throne of fiery flames um, surrounded by wheels of burning fire. And the hair of the head and the clothing is also described there. Um, The Ancient of Days is taking his seat. And here you have other figures in the midst of a fire whose hair is described, whose garments are described, and who are not consumed by it. Um, We might also think of some of the other images where figures are associated with flames and fire. You see it, I think, in Revelation, in places like the appearance of the angel to Manoah and his wife um, in announcing the birth of Samson, where he goes up in the flame. And here there is that extension of that um, fire image to include others. Hmm. When Nebuchadnezzar uh, sees the fourth in there and realizes that they're they're no longer tied up, they're now loosed and and walking around in the midst of the fire without any harm, he calls them out from the fire. But instead of uh, addressing them as rebels, perhaps, or as his servants, he acknowledges that they're servants of the Most High God in verse 26, which already suggests a kind of acknowledgement of some power or authority above himself. That's going to become somewhat more explicit at the end of the chapter with his second decree. But already when he acknowledges them as not his servants, but as servants of another, that's a a significant moment in Nebuchadnezzar's development. I think it's also interesting in verse 27, you have this list again, not the full list of all the officials, but satraps, prefects, governors, and king's high officials, four different types of rulers. Uh, They were gathered at the beginning of the chapter in the the, uh, plain of Dura, bowing down before the image. Now they are coming and in the midst of them are these three Jews and they're they're inspecting them. They find that the fires had no effect on them or on their clothing. I think the fact that their clothing is preserved is important because again, if if the issue is they're standing as as officials in Nebuchadnezzar's court and in his empire, then the fact that their their trousers are still intact means that they're still they're still uh, even having gone through the fire they're still qualified to serve in, in the king's court and the king's uh, administration but it also seems like you have something like an an inverted image instead of having these all of these groups bowing down to the image when the music comes you have all of these groups and it, and the three friends are at the center one of you alluded to this already but almost as if the three friends have taken the place of the image as the object of homage and respect and honor, similar to what happens in Daniel earlier in chapter two, when Nebuchadnezzar bows down to him at the end of the chapter, it seems like the the uh, rulers in Nebuchadnezzar's empire are now doing homage of a sort to uh, these servants of the Most High God. 
as I said at the beginning, the chapter is framed by these two decrees of Nebuchadnezzar. The first one has to do is a command to worship idols. The second one begins with a an act of praise, blessing the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has protected his servants, has not allowed their bodies to be uh, yielded up to the fire, and he commends them for not serving or worshiping any god except their own god. That uh, That's a radical reversal of the original attitude where he was trying to get everyone in his kingdom to serve and worship the image that he had set up. And then he issues this decree, instead of calling on all peoples and nations and tongues to bow down to the image, he issues a decree that threatens anyone who defies or blasphemes the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So you have, uh, again, a draconian kind of punishment, but it's the uh, it's for the exact opposite kind of thing. Uh, earlier, he was going to destroy those who didn't worship idols. Now he's going to destroy those who do defy and blaspheme the, the living God. There's also here, as we see in various other occasions in the story of Daniel in the lion's den and um, Haman and Esther, there is the comeuppance received by those who are malicious and jealous towards the the Jews, those who want to destroy them or um, use their piety against them. Here, as elsewhere, the Lord is the one who protects people who by no earthly means could be protected. And in the end, they end up rising in the kingdom, while those who are their opponents are, by the very fact of taking up opposition, they're brought down. Um, we don't learn what happens to the Chaldeans who accuse them, but you can assume that they were none too pleased with the result of this. Mm-hmm. Just going back to your comment, Peter, you get a, a picture briefly of the two-edged nature of draconian decrees. I guess it, it's a decree that puts these people in such trouble, but then that same decree becomes a, a hedge around them and would presumably have granted them a great deal of religious liberty in the days to come until later rulers popped up. And um, uh, I guess that that's that's a, a big theme in the book of Daniel, isn't it? The uh, the impact of laws and, and their two-edged nature. Mm. I think the, the, the whole story, I mean, the whole book of Daniel is relevant to current circumstances for the church. Uh, and maybe this, uh, this chapter in particular, because there's a, a demand that uh, everyone conform to a particular practice. We mentioned in the last episode, I think that uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really care what anybody thinks as long as they conform, as long as they have this kind of Pavlovian response to when the music plays and do what they're supposed to do and, conf- and, and fit in, then everything will be okay. Nebuchadnezzar is kind of pleading with the three friends uh, when he has his audience, when they appear before him. He's kind of pleading with them to go ahead and at least conform, just bow down. That's all you need to do. We'll play the music again. You have another chance to conform. Uh, and yet the, these three friends refuse to be, to use Alistair's image from last time, they refuse to be melted into Babylon. They refuse to be um, melted down and join in with everything else. They're this kind of, for Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Chaldeans and Babylonian loyalists, they're the impurities in the system. <laughs> And um, it's that it seems like that's the kind of situation, that, particularly in, in uh, many places throughout the world, where the church is under severe kinds of persecutions, and the pressure is strong for them to to just be melted in and conform 
Now, the pressure is strong also to give certain kinds of very private, quiet kinds of defiance, but then a temptation to to buckle and to and to and to fit in uh, once they're confronted and once their once their uh, non-compliance is made public. But I think that this chapter is a is an encouragement to not only to refuse to be caught up in that in that consensus, be willing to be an impurity, be willing to be a be a out of step, but also a willingness to say as much in the face of the authorities who, who try to get you to comply. And what the promise of the passage seems to me that it's again the the focus is on Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to this. The heroism of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has an effect on Nebuchadnezzar. And it opens up, as James was just saying, it opens up this possibility for free worship of the living God um, that uh, they hadn't had. So this it's a it's a little wedge that opens up a huge opportunity for the church. And it's just these three friends who do that, and it's their defiance that opens up that possibility. And that's an encouragement to believers in those kind of situations uh, that their faithfulness, no matter how small it might look, their faithfulness in uh, serving God rather than man can have this kind of dramatic effect on the whole political landscape that they're living in and can open up these these uh, these zones of freedom within within a, a repressive regime. At the beginning of our first study on chapter three, we talked about the background of chapter two and the fact that Nebuchadnezzar seems to be in part reacting to the interpretation of the dream, trying to resist this by establishing this figure, all of gold, that represents him and Babylon, and to form this kingdom that will withstand the threat that the dream represents. And at the very end of that dream, or the interpretation of it, you have the statue being crushed, all the different limbs of it are taken apart. It's brought down with this stone that becomes this great mountain, and it's made laid in ruins. And at the very end of this chapter, it seems as if Nebuchadnezzar is submitting to the decree of the Lord in the very judgment that he declares against anyone who speaks against the Lord. Um, When he says, any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. In some ways, this reminds me of the fate of the statue in the preceding chapter and what Nebuchadnezzar had begun by trying to resist. Now he not only submits to, but in some sense affirms in an almost self-maledictory oath that if he ends up resisting this God, that faith that he saw before the statue will befall him and his kingdom. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Even his earlier question seems to set up the answer, doesn't it? Who is the God who will deliver you um, from my hand? And it, it um, yeah, it sets the stage for what's to what's to come. Uh, another interesting detail, I, I think, is I wonder if we've got in this chapter a little snapshot of, I guess, a couple of different ways in which God can keep us. Um, God can keep us from a trial, as He seems to have done in Daniel's case providentially he's arranged that Daniel wasn't present at this um, particular ceremony or God can keep us through a trial as he did in in the case of his friends and these were very real things if if you just think in terms of the exile and and the the events of like 587 BC which would have been roughly 
coincident with with this. You know, um, if you think of then Babylon's invasion and when they burned the temple down and so on, God kept various people from that particular trial in that he he took Daniel and various others away from Jerusalem and he kept others through it. I guess there would have been faithful um, Israelites left at that time um, who who you know were, were sticking true to God's word and and who God would have preserved and perhaps they were exiled in 587 but um that link to the exile is something that strikes me as important we we spoke i think perhaps at the outset of our consideration of daniel about uh people who assign the book a very late date like a second century date and part of the rationale behind that is that the whole book is written in light of antiochus and the particular uh, persecution which he brought on the Jewish people um, and yet actually chapters like chapter 3 don't fit that very well at all they fit much better with contemporaneous events in the 6th century and they're kind of promoting this passive resistance where you um, just don't comply with what's being asked and, and allow God to deliver and the spirit of the day in Antiochus's time was completely different when you had the Maccabees standing up and taking the fight to um, the Seleucids and the other forces there. And um, this chapter, at least, doesn't strike me at all as the sort of thing that would have fitted that that much later second century um, setting. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.